This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Steve London. Hey Steve, how are you? Good, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. So for everyone that doesn't know Steve, he is someone who has been in the journalistic space for quite a while, since uh, the late 90s, um, writing about watches and other luxury things. Even though you have a background in this, your primary role is marketing in the uh, software world. But covering luxury has sort of been, I guess, would you call it a hobby? How would you describe it? Well, um, it depends. I mean, I started my career as a journalist, uh, segued into marketing slash advertising. I always kept my hand in journalism. I mean, when you write for papers like the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times, we're talking about mainstream journalism. So I was always somebody who was interested in luxury goods. I've been a lifetime collector of you know, watches and other things that guys collect, cars, motorcycles, yada, yada, yada. And in the course of covering these things and appreciating these things for what they are, you sort of spread your wings into things that you like that aren't necessarily part of your day job. So I've written about watches. I've written about alcohol. I've written about aviation. I used to fly, written about cars, um, scuba diving, all sorts of stuff. But it kind of, you, you, I guess you could say that the general umbrella of this would be lifestyle journalism. Now. Let's talk about some years here, because I actually have a larger point that I want to come to, and then we'll talk about a bunch of fun stuff. But this has to do with something that I've been seeing in the media a lot, and they talk about elitism in the journal space. And I have a lot of thoughts to say on that, but I just sort of, I have like a larger point to to make, so humor me here. Sort of what years did you start um, as a professional journalist where you're paid to write about stuff? Oh, I'd probably have to say uh, the early 90s. Okay. Now, I guess one of the points I'm trying to make is, again, there's a lot of discussion in various parts of the media, completely unrelated to watches, mind you, about elitism and journalism. And they talk about some of the big newspapers out there, and there's these people with fancy college degrees who are talking about issues that are not really relevant to a lot of mainstream readers. And I actually don't disagree. Um, And... My part of my point that I'm, I'm thinking I'm trying to make is that compared to sort of the early 90s, right now you have a situation where journalism isn't really a very well paying role. And so some of the only people that go into it are either super entry level or are doing it sort of as a, a vanity job and maybe have a different un- income, come from money or something like that. And again, I'm, I'm coming to a bigger point, but would you sort of disagree uh, or agree in any of the points that I'm making? Well, if we're talking about what people are getting paid now in journalism, we're going to have to define what is a journalist. So if we're saying interesting works for a mainstream media outlet, you know, they're going to make a decent living. If it's, uh, you know, somebody working for a blog or somebody working for a portal, like, for example, if you're working for a publication like eRepublic, this is uh, well-respected, grew out of the print, has a print pedigree. Uh, grew into something that embraces, you know, publications that target all levels of, of government agency work. So here's something that you've got a, a bona fide media outlet. I know uh, their analysts get paid well. I believe that their, you know, reporters are making a living at what they're doing for that. So that's a different type of publication. Now, if you look at somebody who's, you know, kind of 
contributing to a blog or has one toe in this thing because they're an aficionado and they want to write about stuff. I'm not necessarily convinced I would um, classify that person as a journalist. In the old days of collecting, like let's just say within the comic book industry, you'd have these things called fanzines. These were fan magazines, hence the term fandom, which now embraces Comic-Con and you know some of the biggest uh, money-making right, right. vehicles in the world. I would say and I'm not sure if this answers your question or not, that a lot of people writing within the umbrella of this space, and we could call it somebody writing about cars, somebody writing about watches, somebody writing about cosmetics, alcohol. It, it, it seems to me that their, their level of professionalism is judged by the general market by virtue of the amount of attention they attract. And you could have a complete piece of garbage that gets a lot of attraction because it's got, you know, a bunch of clickbait built into it. It's still a piece of garbage. At the same time, you could have something brilliant that uh, is unsanctioned by any mainstream publication that nobody reads, which says, oh, nobody's looking at it. It must be trash. So I, I would honestly say that in many instances, by virtue of the lowering of the benchmark to get an audience, i.e. you don't have to produce any credentials to be published by, by many, many places, you just have to give them some content, that um, what we're seeing is the, the next iteration of fanzines, fandom, uh, within the luxury goods space. You've got fanboys, you know, you've got like these, these kind of loosely knit organizations of guys that collect watches with red things on them that, uh, you know. I, I love these terms, but you don't actually hear them very much anymore. You know, I, I actually among, am among the few people like yourself that likes to refer to people who like watches as fans and that a lot of the media in the space is by someone who is more an enthusiast or is a fan. I mean, I guess part of my larger point is you want you want an elite talking about something as complicated as watches. And, and sometimes fans can be elites and sometimes they cannot be elites. But what I think, and again, this is a bigger point we're going to come to, is you don't really want people who were trained on reading clickbait articles to be writing about something as challenging or sophisticated as watches. I mean, that doesn't ever seem to be satisfying. Do you agree? Uh, I would say that a lot of these, a lot of these so-called articles I've seen really should just be consigned to Reddit, places like that where people can interact and talk about them. But the professional journalist brings a certain purview to the equation. There is a, an ability to assess other pieces of data to tell a story, and there's the ability to tell a story in a compelling manner. And I, I will get into this later, but to not understand the history of journalism and to not spend the time to actually read, study, absorb, and then sort of uh, emulate some of the greats, either write journalistic writers or writers in general, is to do yourself a disservice and to do those, I think, reading yourself your stuff a disservice. Not to say that there's anything wrong with being an impassioned, amateur, fan, boy, girl, person, put in whatever you want. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, the, the, the rising tide floats all boats. It's, it's just more, more fodder that keeps the industry alive. So, so let's ask this question, which I think is interesting. There's some out there, a lot less now than there was maybe even just two years ago. How many people in the world are making a middle income writing professionally about watches? We're talking about people that are doing it as a job, 
are definitely middle income, may or may not have a background being an enthusiast, definitely wouldn't be doing this if it paid entry level. But how many sort of like middle wage watch writers, journalists, media people do you think there are? there? Of course, we're not going to come with a number, but just sort of a general percentage of the overall people in the watch media space. 13. It's a low amount, right? And as, as a matter of fact, to tell you something funny, the first assignment that I ever had um, was for a print publication, and it was to rewrite somebody's piece. Uh, I won't discuss what the piece was about or the writer's name. This writer is now considered one of the top watch writers in the country. Now, maybe he got better. Maybe he was just around long enough. You know what they say about time makes everything respectable. But it, it was kind of interesting. And this cat is still kicking around. So you're saying that their work wasn't very good? Uh, well, I was given the job, the first job I had, of rewriting something that he had written. And he was so pissed off, he basically quit the publication. But he's gone on to bigger and better things, so that's good. <laughs> well, okay, so I guess, I guess, you know, this is sort of a bit of a meandering conversation so far. I guess I want to sort of explain to everyone that the bigger context is that Steve and I have had a lot of discussions about why the watch media space isn't performing a very good job on a wholesale basis of being media. Um, I'd like to think that I, at a blog to watch, is a bit of an exception. But to a large degree, um, if you are a consumer trying to just be educated about watches, learn about what's cool, um, know how to follow along with your sort of favorite brands or types of watches and things like that, it's a minefield. It isn't really that straightforward in the same way it might be available for cameras or clothing or cars or, uh, you know, cigars or something like that, like watches continue to remain this very strange area when it comes to media. And and Steve and I have laughed about it a lot, but I think it's interesting to talk about it because I it's been so long since I've been new to the field. But I try to put myself in the shoes of a fresh enthusiast. Maybe they're young or maybe they just recently discovered that watches are really cool. But a man or a woman just getting into watches today I'm not really sure what that experience is like. And I think that Steve and I have, you know, discussed in the past how there's a lot of false directions. You know what I mean? Well, I think that if you're somebody who wants to learn what to read, you can read any of the fanboys because they're just cutting and pasting press releases or a company because they're looking for coverage will send them a watch to review and they'll cut and paste the press release and they'll have a couple shaved, you know, wrist photos of, um, the watch that they're sporting around in front of a borrowed Porsche or Ferrari to make them look cool. And, um, you know, you, you can see the exact same level of writing in any Facebook group, you know, covering Rolex or paddocks or whatever you want in any Reddit group covering the same thing. I mean, it's, it, it's all the same level as I said. Well, it, it sounds like something there bothers you. Like you speak about it negatively, which I'm not saying is wrong, but try to explain your thinking a little bit. I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying is if, you're looking for a guide through the quote-unquote minefield of writing about certain products. If you want to figure out what they're about, read the company's press releases. There's just not a lot of writers who are going to get in-depth. And, you know, if you are looking for the writers who are going to get in-depth, there's, there's uh, one guy that covers Omegas who's brilliant. Um, there's a couple of guys who cover Rolexes. They're brilliant. They're not that hard to find because they've got long histories of covering this stuff. They don't have, you know, here's one article here, here's an article there, and they're going to pop up in the, the larger publications. But, you know, by and large, I think the rest of it is, is just, you know, fan adulation. And that's fine. 
Because again, if you can stumble across a fan adulation piece that some watch company sent to some kid, or you can read the company's press release and get just about the same information, which is a good starting point. But if you want to really understand the pedigree, you want to understand the history behind the brand that you're embracing, you want to know everything about Submariners, there are people who have covered this material and you can find them and they have, you, the, the writing is, is much stronger than what you'll see. And the knowledge base is there. And the knowledge base is what separates, you know, the amateurs from the pros. It's being able to call back and put everything that you're saying about a current iteration of a brand. And you know how many SKUs these companies are putting out now uh, in perspective against what they produced in the past. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you're fresh to the watch hobby and you go onto Google, you go onto social media, you start to find the media that exists, um, there's a lot of low sophistication stuff, which is thinly veiled marketing, uh, regurgitation of press releases, uh, lists and things like that that are arbitrary and don't really make any sense. If you're trying to get good guidance into figuring out the hobby as a smart consumer, there's not a lot of stuff out there. That's what my mission has been at a blog to watch, but it, it's it's still very rare. Why do you think that is? I mean, you you could you could apply that maxim to anything though. I mean you if really? you're gonna research online, you're gonna find a tremendous amount of stuff on it. I mean Google uh you know BMW airheads or uh, Google um you know Porsche Targa 4S I mean, any of these things, you're going to get a tremendous amount of information presented to you because they're just popular things. Watches are popular. Now, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is important. Cars do have it. And what about them say is that there's media which is heavily pushed by the brands to talk about things way. Cars have that for sure. But outside of that space in consumer things, clothing, this and that, I know there's the issue of access, but isn't it a little bit more... I guess you could say democratic. It isn't so heavily agenda-based, or am I wrong? Am I being idealistic? What, watch industry is democratic? No, I mean, outside of certain luxury areas, cars, watches, and things of that nature, consumer coverage, things, you know, coverage on things for people to buy tends to not so be agenda-based. Like, are the are the companies that make things, you know, do they have their hands in in all the PR and all the articles? Are they really making sure that everyone doesn't say negative things? No, I'm just wondering how pervasive that is. I don't think so. I think that you're going to, you can definitely se separate the wheat from the chaff. I mean, we both know that watches are a hot thing to write about. And you've got a, a lot of enthusiasts who are pushing out a lot of content on that. And the companies give out samples to people to cover. So, you know, if you're looking for something that can trickle up now, Certain brands are going to be more aggressive. I am pretty sure that if I'm Googling Bremont, I'm not going to get as much stuff as, as if I Google, you know, James Bond Submariner or, you know. Uh, There's a lot of Bremont stuff. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A whole lot of Bremont. Huh? A whole lot of Bremont. You've, you've trained or at least edited watch writers before. What, do you, what would you say are some of the biggest things that they're weak at? I mean, I've done it a lot. I've had to train many watch writers, but like, what are some of the biggest problems in the, the new watch writers that you I, see? I've never trained anybody except my cats. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound very effective. They say that's, that's hard to do. I have not trained any watch writers. I've edited things that other people have written. Oh, so you've <laughs> never talked to them. You never said, I read your article and changed this. You've just sort of done it after they've submitted it. I don't even barely talk to my wife. <laughs> I'm antisocial. <laughs> I, I, I see other watch writers 
um, such as yourself, when we're on junkets. So when a, when a company brings in five or six people to cover an event or maybe 10 people to cover it, that's when I interact with the watch race. And by and large, as you know, it's, it's typically a static crew. I mean, you get the same people time and time again. Uh, you know, you get the big guy with the cigars, you get the, uh, you know, get the couple with uh, like a Q. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that continually show up to these particular things. So you get to know them and, you know, have I read any of their stuff? I've, I've looked at it and I would say that it, it probably is, you know, it's okay. It's typical. They get the information along. I mean, I like to think that, you know, your style and my style is different from the pack. And that's probably why we get pegged. And then, you know, in my instance, I don't have as much time. So I turned down a lot of stuff, but, um, you know, by and large, a lot of it, a lot of these people do have a decent amount of experience. Um, you know, they know how watches work. They, they know how cases are made. They know where things are made. You're being very friendly to them. This is not typical, Steve. I, I mean, it's good. It's good that you're being nice, but I mean, like, you know, we we often joke about how they they don't even know the basic technical stuff. Well, I mean, the, I think the people the people that we typically bump into have a, a decent knowledge, or at least you know. Can, you need to go to some new events, my friend. Because make it. I haven't I, the 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 old timers, so to say, that do represent what you're talking about. I haven't seen a lot of them in a while. But we haven't seen anybody in a while. We haven't been on a trip for. I mean, I think you were on a trip recently. I've been. A, I have not been on. A, we got to get you back in the fold. We got to get you back in the who's, fold. The last trip we were going to go on was canceled, as you recall. By yeah, yeah. So you know. Well, there haven't there weren't were, any trips for two years. It's true. There was a very long hiatus, I, and I've been just because I'm. You know, this is my my day to day thing. I've been on some trips already now, and it's it's kind of funny. I think one of the new emergent types of media personalities is the podcaster and not all brands, but brands are starting to take podcasting as a genre seriously, which is great because we're on a podcast right now. And I was the first person to do a watch podcast back in, I think it was maybe 2009 or 2010. But these podcasters show up and, and, you know, mind you, they don't take pictures, not really. They don't have web pages. They have like an Instagram account and a podcast which again is about as low as a bar uh, of an, you know to set up a, a media personality or company as, as I can imagine, and brands are starting to flirt with some of these personalities. Now some of these guys are okay, but many of them, I'd say eighty percent or more, are gone within a few months, if not a few years. The, I mean, that's the sort of funny thing for me now. I think this is a this is a hobby that requires someone who's worldly and understands a bunch of disciplines and has some maturity to cover it. Is this bothering you? Um, a little bit, a little that's bit, a little bit of a rock in the boot. No, it's not. I'm not, there's no threat to me. There's no threat to me. I just continually feel like I, I can't find a lot of peers. You know what I mean? Like I know that they have watch media as part of their title, but I don't fundamentally feel that we're in the same category. Like I've had to build a business. These people still have day jobs. Okay, right? This is this is the epitome of a hobby for them. And I started this as a hobby, and there's something wrong with that. And I appreciate the experimentation. But the bar on what watch media coverage is is so low. I mean, some of these guys just have drinking podcasts where they drink alcohol and then talk about watches. It gets kind of sloppy and silly. Like, is, is that... That's not this podcast? I'm in the wrong place. Oh, good joke. Good joke. Here's my question. Let me ask you a question. So... 
if you look at barrier to entry to get some eyeballs, to hear what you're talking about or what you're writing about, writing is hard. We both agree. You have to, you have to bring a discipline to the table. You have to look at something. If you're taking photos, you're adding another layer. Now, let's rip that whole thing apart. Separate the photos. You've got a bunch of people, and this is what I've seen, just sort of taking photos of watches, sticking them on Instagram, and that's considered watch coverage with the caption. Then on the other side of the equation is, if I'm a podcaster, I'm going to event, I'm showing up, I'm basically just talking. I don't have to write jack shit. I'm going around, I'm talking to people, I'm you know let, letting them basically fill in the gaps of things that I don't know. So podcasting and you know publishing photos, it's got to be the the lowest barrier to entry to your point. Yes, and I think what's important to recognize is that when you set the barrier so low, you invite people in who really don't have that much to contribute to the discussion about the hobby. I know I started when I was 25, but I've been doing this for 15 years and I have, you know, just by my own experience noticed I'm I'm I know a lot more than most people and and my my I, I tend to steer people in the right direction. I've been validated in many ways and I take this seriously. It's very academic for me. It's you know, I I I really take it seriously. The, you know, the 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 information I provide to people. But I see that that is not mimicked or represented in a lot of the other people in the space right now. Um, and it's very strange for me because this is a, the, the people, the, the elites of the world that like watches as a hobby do it as a, as a, as a pleasure, uh, a pleasurely pursuit. It's a leisure activity. It's a hobby. It's a recreation. You, you spend money on it. You don't make money from it. You buy watches to feel good. Yet, they're relying on a bunch of kids and people that don't really care about or think very carefully about the downstream effect of what they're doing, giving them suggestions on what brands to focus on and, and what models to buy. And I don't know, that bothers me. So wait a second. So would you call yourself a podcast elitist? A podcast elitist. Um, well, I, I don't know if it's a podcast elitist. Because again, podcasting is something that I've done for fun. I've listened to radio shows growing up. I take it seriously as a genre, but I don't really know what, what goes to success. I think the most popular podcast is the Joe Rogan show, which is sort of a shock and awe thing. And it, it makes sense. It's sort of like the next generation of what a Howard Stern used to be. I totally understand that. And, and again, I, I do, you know, I put together a relatively efficient program and we have an editor and stuff like that. But I've been to wonderful podcasting spaces and things like that. But I think if you just wanted to call me like a watch media elitist, I, I try to make sure that the clubhouse I'm in is nicely decorated and has, you know, dignified members. I, I do care about the environment. That's true. All right. So we won't say that a podcast elitist is the world's tallest midget since we're talking about the hierarchy of watch journalism. And it sounds like Given the buried entry, I don't know, I'm thinking Instagram and podcast are probably vying for the bottom before we start trickling up to where... Look, podcasting as a genre is still the Wild West, okay? There's no, like, centralized search engines or specific ways that people download and listen to them. How do the people discover them is ridiculous. Some of them make money, most don't. I mean, wouldn't you agree that podcasting is still very much the, the media Wild West? Well, the, uh, the, the problem is, you know, and I've listened to hundreds of podcasts, um, looking for something interesting to actually listen to. And I've, I've, I have sat through long podcasts where people basically, you know, bounce jokes off each other and waste a lot of time. I really, I, 
you know, to, to, to tease out the information you're looking to, this is an example. I was listening to a three part, I was driving from Chicago down to Florida. And I was, you know, I'm always looking for stuff to listen to that's long, long winded. That's an insanely long drive. Yeah, it's not that bad. Um, but anyway, you, uh, I, I, I found some podcasts, which is a three part series, one hour a piece on DB Cooper. Now, for anybody listening, DB Cooper, actually, his name was not DB Cooper. I think it was uh, the B was added or something like that, or the D was added, one of the two. He's the guy that jumped out of the back of an airplane in 1970 over Washington State uh, with $200,000 wearing a suit after, after having smoked a cigarette at 10,000 feet in the middle of a rainstorm. It was never found, but some of the money washed up. Anyway, I'm thinking this is a thing wow. I like. It's interesting. But I had to listen to probably two-thirds of it with these guys bouncing jokes off each other. So I'm saying if you could have just consolidated everything down to one hour, it'd be great. And then you listen to something like, you know, Noisy's short history of podcasts, or you listen to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast. I mean, these are superbly well done pieces. The information is there. They don't screw around with a lot of, you know, chit chat. It's just basically boom to the point. So I, I, I've kind of Gotten to the point of if I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna listen to five minutes of a podcast. If I like the way it's going, if I'm learning stuff, I'm gonna stick around. If I don't, if it's just a lot of you know, to your the the thing you mentioned a minute ago, which I still think sounds great, the drinking and playing with watches podcast, um, which I think probably should have video as well, but then it wouldn't be a podcast because you could see people like weaving around the camera and stuff and dropping things, which would be kind of funny. Oh, you just dropped, but you chipped. The Cyclops eye. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something really funny. So some of those, I, I've listened into like 24 to 26 yeah. minutes where they still haven't got past uh, the intro, what they're drinking, and what watch they're currently wearing. What is, this, what is this podcast? There's a bunch of them now. There's a bunch of them. Name one name. No, I don't want to single well, any particular one out. on because, that podcast because that sounds way more up my alley. Like I will hook you up. I'll hook you up. Drinking. I mean, I'm I'm down with that. I mean, it's also in your part of the country as well, uh, up in the Midwest area. There, that's where a lot of that comes from. So, and look, but the thing is, it's popular. There's an audience out there for it. I'm not admonishing it. If anything, I'm sort of just idly amused at how the watch media space has developed over the last 15 years. When I came in, I was the disruptor. I screwed up a bunch of stuff for a bunch of people. I was less expensive. I performed way better in the sense that a blog to watch was getting enormous amounts of visibility that these other people weren't getting. And I was actually conveying information in a helpful way. I, I, I disrupted everything. And I thought that I would be disrupted multiple times. And there have been various different types of disruptions. Social media is probably the biggest one. But it's also interesting to me that this space hasn't attracted as many long hobbyist elites like you you for me and the reason one one of the reasons i want you on the show is you you sort of represent this previous generation of watch writer or luxury writer who wrote about it after living it and after having some type of a background in communication or media or something like that that's very rare today and if anything there's your generation which some of them maintain but there isn't anyone who says like you know what i've been flying planes and driving fancy cars and racing motorcycles and painting and enjoying wine. And now I'd like to dedicate some time to writing about another passion. I have watches. Like, I just haven't seen that in, in a new personality in a very, very long time. 
And I think that that type of elite hobbyist probably makes the best kind of watch media member, unless you're specifically talking about industry coverage, which is more of a business thing. What do you think? Honestly, I think that more the business thing is kind of where things are going. So if you are a brand manager at LVMH or you're a brand manager and you let's just say you're you're playing around with tag. What do you want? What what what's part of your charge? Part of your charge is to make sure that you get as much coverage for the new tag smartwatch or the uh, you know the Louis Vuitton smartwatch as you possibly can, right? So how are you going to do that? You're going to see who's on your list. You're going to ask your PR person who's on our list. Uh, who do we want to send a watch to? Who do we go to? We, so you're going to get the usual suspects, and then you're going to start uh, groping around and scratching around. You're going to find, oh, this guy's covered this brand in the past. We'll, we'll have to talk to him, send him a press release. Maybe he'll write something about it because that guy who's receiving it, who maybe has absolutely no backstory involving journalism, writing about anything whatsoever, you know, maybe he's a coder, you know, maybe he's an Uber driver, or maybe she, or maybe they're. You know, any any pick your pick your any number of, of gig jobs you could have today, but they happen to have a blog on the side that covers watches or covers luxury goods or covers one thing or another that basically is read by somebody. So as a brand manager, part of your job is to make sure you get as much exposure for your goods as possible, right? So to your point, it is a business decision. And being part of the business decision equation is by default a form of validation. So you get a you get a press release, somebody found you to send you that press release. You're not necessarily going to get a sample to write about. You're not necessarily going to get invited on a trip or maybe you are, I don't know. But uh the bottom line is if you're if you're on a list, if you're part of that equation producing something that another company feels of value, you know, who who are you or myself to say uh, it's wrong because we're, you know, snobs sitting around you know, drinking Paul Roger Reserve. Okay, no, look, you're being very diplomatic about it, and and I and I appreciate that. Um, and and again, I think that the business of the watch industry is still notoriously difficult to cover because there's very little information to go on. These brands don't like to talk, um, and so you know, if all you have to go off is their like annual reports of the, the the relatively few that are publicly traded, that wouldn't tell you very much. Like there just isn't a lot of substance. And I know people who've had a background in covering luxury and things like that, that, that try to do it, but it really is an uphill battle there. Um, well, wh- who do you want to read? Like, you're, you like watches. Wh- who do you like to read in order to get your information about what's, what's new? You know, how do you like to learn that? Do you want to learn directly from the brands or do you want to have sort of a, a guide? I mean, a lot of people, again, rely on me, if anything, just to tell okay, them what's well, new. Well, I would say that there's a few sources. So I get a couple of newsletters I get your newsletter. I get Gary's newsletter. I get those two every week, and I kind of scroll through those to see what's happening. You know, I also get the press releases from the various brands. But I'll tell you what I find, in a way, even more interesting. So I get the maybe two or three times a week newsletters from Shopworn, which is a site that sells watches. And why do I find that interesting? Because I know that if I can go to Shopworn, I can see what maybe didn't sell what was originally listed for $42,000 and they're selling for $17,000. It's kind of a, you know, if you're looking, if you're, if you're shopping for cars, for example, like, you know, I like Porsches. So I'm always kind of, you know, looking around at Porsches and, and seeing what they're, what's happening. You have to study the marketplace as much 
as as studying the information that the brands or other writers are putting out about it. You have to see what are these things selling for? What are the enthusiasts talking about? What do people like? What do they don't like? What's the actual price in this? What's it being, what's it selling for over on eBay or what's it selling for over on Joma Shop or what's it selling for on, you know, Chrono 24? And you start to analyze the conversations. Like if you, if you, if you belong to specific groups and you see people having these conversations about what they think their value is and why it's this and why you should spend 30% over retail on a Rolex instead of, you know, waiting to get the call from your AD. In, in other words, spent, and this applies to multiple luxury brands I can think of. Porsche is another one. I mean, it just through the roof. If you're talking about people actually spending more money for pre-owned goods than what you can buy current goods for, because the perception is you can't get current goods. So I spend a lot of time looking at the market and looking to what looking at what consumers, people either trying to buy these things or sell these things, are saying about them. So if I'm going to look at three or four things, I'm going to look at you know what's rolling up in Joma Shop. What are they selling stuff for? What's in Shopworn? Why did it sell? Why did it not sell? Because I think it's a it's a great place to go and actually see a, a tr- more of a true market value on things. I'm going to read your blog to watch newsletters. I'm going to read the IW stuff. I'm going to look at things that give me hey, here's brand perspective, and hey, here's what's happening in the real world. Because you cannot write about things without understanding the real world. That's when you think about journalists like you know Tom Wolf, who created was one of the a, a group that created the, the so-called new journalism in the early '60s. They dropped themselves into this story. They became part of the story. They looked at the story from all different ways. Of, you know, the, the the penultimate books on that type of journalism probably would probably be you know, Hunter's Fear and Loathing or, um, you know, uh, the collection uh, by Tom Wolf, you know, Technicolor, Candy Colored Technicolor Dream. I mean, these are these are examples of hardcore. I'm in the moment. I'm part of the story journalism. But you didn't get there by just reading the press releases or or observing what it was. You had to really understand the market what what's being said you're acting like an analyst is really what you're describing it's not so i look at it like an you you have to but again this is what i love about this hobby it attracts so many different types of consumers you can't make a wholesale statement like you have to you have to and i respect that i i do similar thing but there are people out there that want to sit back and hear from their one you know their one their one expert you know maybe that's me maybe they have three or four of them but like they don't want to do all that stuff. They don't want to read through a bunch of opinions. They're like, I respect what Ariel thinks. He and I seem to have, you know, similar tastes. I, I don't have time for more than than, than his. So you're kind of like the Joe Rogan of the watch space. I'm not sure if that's a good yeah, or bad thing. You're getting, you're getting <laughs> the eyeballs, and you're provocative, and you're, uh, you know, calling things out. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. 
Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I mean, not as much as I used to. I need your advice there. How can I return a little bit to being very open-minded? I mean, I know all these people at brands. I have to go to dinner with them. Like, I think you're, I think you're far too jaded to return to open-minded, which is a good thing. People want a strong okay. point of view. You have a strong point of view. I have a strong point of view. These are things that, you, you, again, neither of us, at least not anymore, are copy and pasting press releases. Not that we ever did. Caveat. Uh, Never. <laughs> but, uh, God, God, no. God, no. Who would do that? No, really. I always made a point not to because I hated that. Or shaving our wrists for a photo. I, I, tr- I tr- trim. I have to. You, you don't that. want hairs on the watch. Nobody wants that. Just put it on a put it on your wife or your dog or something. Either a lot Re- of really women. just carry carry a model because I, look, I've had so much so much flack over the years for this. Either there's too much hair in my <laughs> wrist or not enough. No one, very few people feel that it's it's just enough. It's a, it's a difficult balance. Okay, so okay, so how do I return a little bit to being a little bit more assertive when I what in what I say about some of these watches and brands because sometimes I have stronger pins than I share. I, I tend to get my point across every time. I do it tactfully. But it's like I know all these people. They're all like friends. They chat with me on WhatsApp. Like am I just so permanently intertwined in my relationships that I have to be diplomatic forever? Is this a therapy session or or is this the blog to watch podcast? I just want to make sure I'm in the right place here. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not, no one's paying hourly here. Uh, but I mean, I think it's an interesting discussion because there's a skepticism on behalf of the consumer. Oh, you're being paid to say these things. It's not being paid. It's more like, well, I know them. And the next time they see me, they'll be like, but Ariel, how, how could you? Hang on. Hey, so let me ask you this. All right. So what would constitute something negative? Like, all right, let's just, let's just play out a, a scenario. All right. And this would be maybe your ethical conundrum. So you get invited by Nomos, for example, to go to Germany and write about their products, and which is something I did uh, a couple of years ago back when you could travel. And you, for some reason, don't like the Nomos product l- that they're rolling out. You're like, you know, another, yet another Mondrian it looks the same, blah, 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 blah. So you come back and they're waiting for the review and you think to yourself, there's nothing new here. Again, Nomos, this is a hypothetical. I just threw your name out. You can put tag in there or whoever else you want. Seiko. No, we love Seiko. You determine in your head that there's nothing new here. Do you say, hey, this is uh, this is carrying on. Uh, this is an homage to everything Nomos has done. They're carrying on the tradition. And it's a pure line and yada, yada, yada. Or do you actually say, boy, this is a really boring looking watch. I mean, can't they come up with something better than this? Because they've flown you to Germany. They've wined and dined you. You've had a great time. You know the brand manager, the PR person, you know whoever you're working with. They flew you back. You had a hell of a trip. And there's a certain implicit indebtedness. Or is there? So that's my question to you. Okay. Is you feel uh, indebted uh, <laughs> to say something nice because somebody in one way or another gave you something you didn't have, which is, in my book, a form of payment? I see myself... Um, and a lot of my value is in my ability to convey information, you know, do some storytelling. And when I go on a trip, there's almost always a story that somebody wants to know. Maybe I'm not the demographic. Maybe it's not a story that I per se am that interested in. 
but there's a watch lover out there that does want to know that story. So what I will do is I will say, you showed me a bunch of stories. You treated me very nicely. Even if I'm not still a fan of your product, I'm going to tell the story that you want, that you feel uh, um, is, is going to represent you know, the positive things that I saw. Because there's almost always a situation where I see some good stories that would excite people. So I just sort of do my job as sort of an information sifter, and I, t I tell the right story. But I'll give you a very good example that you re reminded me, because you mentioned Seiko. Now, I love Seiko product. I know you do as well. But Seiko, um, I just wrote a review on uh, sort of a higher-end Seiko dive watch, just over a thousand bucks. And Seiko has this specific website called Seiko Lux. <laughs> Even though it's called Seiko LX, it's Seiko L-U-X-E. They, they laugh about all the different names. And this doesn't even count the mainstream watches, but they had 99 uh, models. And this, again, also doesn't even represent the ones that are sold in other countries and things like that. So let's say over 100 high-end dive watches uh, by Seiko. And I don't know how to distinguish them. I don't understand why they make some at some price point and why at another. I have a lot of difficulty understanding how these are segmented or have any idea how to tell someone, get this one over this one. I literally just said, try them all on and hopefully something will speak to you. I want to convey that to Seiko in a very strong way and say, it's literally impossible to wrap your mind around what you're doing. It's like people have to ignore 70% of your stuff so they can make a purchase decision because it's just too much. I don't necessarily know how to say that to them, but they care, even though I feel like it's a big deal. It's big, like going to like Omega, well, I guess they do have a lot of dive watches and they have like literally hundreds. They have like maybe like, you know, 15 or 20 now, but like like over a hundred. It's, it's so crazy. It's a skewnami. Yes, skewnami. That's a good, yeah. And, and, and again, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I think they come out with too many watches too often right now. It'll, it'll, it'll tone it down. So see, I don't have like a problem with the product, but like they make a bunch of weird decisions. This I don't is inside baseball. And what does the consumer care about this? So, I mean, getting back to the Nomos example, if you saw, or just take their name out of it, any fill in the blank, you saw, you're taking a trip, you saw a watch that did absolutely nothing for you. Zero. You didn't even like it. Are you going to write that up? I okay. Mean, but I, any consumer, maybe, maybe, but any consumer can go to the Seiko website and be overwhelmed. And I cover Seiko on a regular basis, and I feel powerless to help somebody decide one watch versus another because I don't understand the differences sometimes. Like it's, it, it, it sometimes seems arbitrary, and I just, again, I'm just trying to figure it out. Now, I know they're just testing the market and seeing what's going on, but as someone who like, wants there to be rhyme and reason behind this, it's driving me, it's crazy. Well, I mean, are, are people, when you're, when you're writing an article, are you trying to dictate taste? Come on. You know that's a trap because taste is very, very uh, subjective. And so there's rules of beauty and symmetry and functionality, but taste is, is very personal. So let's, let, let's, look at, let's look at some not as well-covered brands like Ocean Crawler, for example, our friends that we met in Chicago. I think their stuff looks cool. I think it's thoughtful. I think it's funky. They do not get a lot of coverage. They do send me a, a, an email every couple of weeks, so I know they're still around. But, um, you know, I, I like things that are a little, you know, more exciting. Of course, there's none in my collection. It's all a bunch of, you know, boring Rolex stuff for whatever reason. But those type of watches may not appeal to everybody. So if I were to write up, you know, an article on them, I'd say, hey, in, in my opinion, I like the funky dolls. I like the this. I like the crocodile bands or whatever they've got blah, blah, blah. But 
somebody might read that and go, well, I think they look like shit. They're too busy. It looks like a Halloween party that somebody barfed up some you know, nerfs on. Uh, why would I ever wear that? So when I personally write about this type of stuff, I, I tend to stay away from, you know, what do I really think this thing looks like? It's more about how is this related to something else that somebody can, you know, come up with their own association, like, you know, the, the but you're, you're telling a, you're telling a fun story about context and you're allowing people to come to their conclusions, but you have a very specific way of doing that. Photos tell the story about how something looks. I may say, you know, it's a simplistic design. If you're into simplistic designs, this is the watch. You're not. To bring this whole thing full circle, I think that if you look at the fanboy journalism, you know, these guys are effusive about what's whatever is sent to them. And everything is, oh, this is gorgeous. This this uh, this stainless steel case is great. And, you know, this uh, hesalite crystal is amazing. And this sapphire crystal is great. And the luminosity on the hands is unbelievable, yada, 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 on and on. And at a point, it, it loses all meaning. So I think you really have to stick to, you know, the, the fundamental facts, which gets us back to the nature of journalism in the first place. You know, who, what, when, where, why? What does this thing do? Why does it do it? How does it do it? What does it look like? Here's what it looks like. Here's a photo. Make up your own mind. Don't make up the mind for your reader. Give them the facts. Put them in the situation. Let them know the backstory of the company. And, you know, let them make the call they like. So in terms of Seiko, I think you're on the point. They've got to watch for every wrist and maybe some that haven't been invented yet. And um, scroll through this, their Sears catalog of uh, the Seiko, <laughs> Seiko universe, the Seiko multiverse, and, you know, decide. I mean, it's almost like a game trying to, like, accumulate in one area all the watches they have because there's no like one list there's like this list and that list you have to look at them all and be like oh there's a few new ones on this list oh in japan they have only these or this is sold only in europe or this is a particularly high price point so it's not even on this website like <laughs> there's so much of that going you on know, the, they got the willard i mean you know they've, they've done they've got the will of the big tuna or whatever it's called little tuna star kissed i mean they've got here's the thing with some of these watch companies if you have developed a watch that the fans themselves name, this was the Seiko article I wrote, and I'm sure millions of others have written it too, but if you get to the point in whatever brand it is you're putting out and your, your, your product either becomes you know, a verb or a noun, it's, it's that well associated with a specific thing and everybody knows what you're talking about. If I say, you know, the bluesy or the Hulk, or, you know, root beer, Batman, Batgirl. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Pepsi. Same thing with the Willard, Captain Willard. Same thing with the tuna. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, you, you, you've got something down. You, your job at that point is to keep chasing that same DNA and making sure that it's replicated. So, you know, some of these brands have knocked it out of the park. Other brands are struggling and they're emulating. But, you know, a, a brand like Seiko, I mean, they've already nailed it. They've already done it. They're already there and they've had it. They have a very interesting backstory, you know. Um, well, they have they have the product respect, and a lot of brands still haven't earned universal product respect. No, remember when they pulled out of all the you know True Value hardware stores or wherever they were selling? Remember that was what, like three or four years ago that trip we were on where they said, "Hey, they're going to rein it all in." Oh yeah, 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 only only like fancy watch fancy stores. watch stores. And then we were at all the speakeasies in New York drinking those you know weird cocktails. Ah, uh, <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> 
They'll come back. They'll where's come my, back. Where's my invite? Seiko, hello. Ariel and I need to go to Japan. Let's go. Look, Japan's not even open yet. I'm actually planning on going to Japan for like my 40th birthday, and I can't even plan it because they're still closed. I have to get a business exemption visa. Well, if you're motivated, you can do that. Yeah, I, I guess. Okay, so I'm going to change the topic and talk about a certain type of coverage that some people do when they go on these watch trips, which bothers the hell out of me. And it's, um, I'll call it the experiential report, where it's literally like a journal oh, entry yeah. of like what That's I did. Right. I landed from the plane and someone picked me up and they were holding a sign <laughs> and my shoes hurt. And we went to the hotel and there was a drink waiting for me. Yeah. And then two hours after the sunset, we went to dinner <laughs> and people were wearing watches that I wanted to look at. Like... <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the worst. There's a lot has of this. Chicken writer has a couple of books out. Believe it. <laughs> uh, and that particular is a very nice person, by the way. I will say, but yeah, there is um, there is travel journal, travel watch journal. As <laughs> I wore the watch down the street all day long, and somebody whistled at me. Yeah, that. So like, so what? What's the point on this one? Yeah, we. It's well. <laughs> Look, there's some people that can pull it off and do it really well. That's very, very few. What I've found is that there's these, this generation out there that has no writing background, no journalism background, maybe takes some pictures, knows nothing but to do this. Like personal journaling is about as far as they've ever gotten in, 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 in writing. And this is the best way they can do. And, and we start to see that they some watch writers come in doing that because that's all they've ever read is experience reports. They've never read actual journalism or media or, or as you said earlier in the show, fanboy coverage. Well, you know, travel writing, I mean, that's basically travel writing. And travel writing, I get it. And I, I Who wants that? Who, what consumer is like, oh, yes, this is teaching me so much. Like, it's, it's so narcissistic. I, for me, I try to make the person reading it imagine that they're touching it and they could own it and they could wear it. It's not like, well, here's what I felt about it. It's so egotistical. Yeah, I know. But that's 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 an offshoot of travel writing. And, you know, if somebody and this is this is, I think, where it gets into something a little bit different. If I, for example, am reading an article by somebody who's, say, a professional hiker or, you know, somebody who likes to hike around, and they're talking about hiking, uh, you know, Mount Hood or you know, hiking someplace where I may want to go and hike because I like hiking. I, I don't care if they've never written anything beyond their name. If they can string together enough words to tell me what the hike was like, I'll read the whole goddamn thing. Really? You wouldn't prefer it to be in a way that's meant for you as a reader rather than just focusing on themselves no, and their emotions? I will, I will read the words of another hiker. I'll read the words of another person who wore this pair of sneakers because, hey, I'm going to wear this pair of sneakers. I'm going to wear these hokas on this hike. I want to see how they perform. That's where you get into something that's more of like, I'd call it almost a consumer review. And I would say that's, that's, that I, I'm not looking for a professional thing. I'm looking for an impassioned review by somebody who's actually putting stuff to the test. Okay. But some of these travel reports, I guess the point is they don't talk about the watches other than just mentioning their name. You don't get any idea about what the watches are like or whether to pay attention to them. You hear more about their hotel room then the, the thing that you actually came there for, which is the product, then, that is my problem. As long as the PR manager or brand manager at the end of the quarter can submit a report and there's a link to that article and it fills up another line on the Excel spreadsheet, that's, that's why this stuff happens. 
I mean, it's, it all comes down to accountability. How much have I got? You're, you're doing your job. What's your job based on? Okay. My job's based on, uh, you know, how many, how many people can I get to write about this product I'm pushing? Okay. What would you do for me this quarter? Here it is. I got 37 uh, links to articles. I did my job. Give me my paycheck. You, you're go on for another quarter and here's a five more SKUs. Go get some. Okay. I, I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. My job is different. There's no quantitative element to the day-to-day of what I do. I mean, yes, as a business, you have to make money, obviously. But for me, the the product I do is try to be good articles. There's no way of quantifying it. I can't put it through some type of a program to give me a score. I ha- just have to look at it and make a value judgment. Okay, this is good enough to publish. That's why their brands keep bringing you back because they know they're getting something of, of quality along with all the other dross that they have to you know account for. So you've got an aerial article, you've got a you know few other people in there that have some you know decent writing chops and are going to put put out something that sounds good. I mean, with with the LVMH piece, I did a little research on that on the new smartwatch. I haven't written mine up yet, but there was a great article by a woman. It was a it was a V blog did a really in-depth story on uh, Engadget. So, I mean, because it was a smartwatch, it went to, you know, somebody who's familiar with smartwatches that not typically thought of as a watch publication. But, you know, there's some people who are going to cover stuff, but you know, you're in the group that's going to provide some, some, some experience and some meat in the story. But, you know, don't forget, there's a whole lot of lines in that spreadsheet. And I think it all comes back to a business decision. Here's the decision. Who are we going to send these things to? Where are we going to get coverage? We'll get, you know, three or four good pieces. Maybe the, uh, the journal will write it up. You know, maybe it'll fall in the Times Magazine. They'll do some stuff on it. You know, Gary will write it up. Uh, a couple other pubs. And then, you know, the rest of it is, you know, these bloggers, podcasters. Look, you're, you're doing an adequate job of explaining how, how some of these business decisions and calculus gets made and what the reality is for a lot of things. For me... I'm glad that I'm not beholden to that, and I'm just trying to do the best job I can. Final topic, um, a little bit talking about the future, and I think that part of the future of not just watch media, but a lot of online media is that people are going to be paying for it, paid content, um, ideally a la carte, meaning you know per an article, for example, or more popular right now is, is subscriptions and things like that. But I believe that to solve some of the problems that we we have talked about, in this discussion and how to create higher quality watch media, it should be paid for by its ultimate customer, which is uh, the, the reader, the consumer, not necessarily the brand. Right now, there's sort of a very strange triangle where it's the media title who's writing for the consumer, but paid for by the, uh, the, the, the advertiser. And you have sort of this strange um, sometimes, you know, not harmonious conflict of interest, which, uh, which can happen. There's, there's balances that can be struck, but it's hard and it's, it's, it's always shifting all the time. So I think that, uh, um, a probable solution if we ever get there is, is people paying for content. Um, do you think that's the direction things should move in? What will that look like? How long do you think until we'll get there? Just overall thoughts on, on, the future of watch media or, or all luxury media or, or many, much media of being something that people pay for, well, maybe people, even a la carte. People are paying for content now, aren't they? I mean, you have subscription services for all other types of publications. I mean, well, you have it for major publications that can afford to implement complicated subscription systems. 
I wouldn't say that there's a lot of small to medium sized blogs that that do that and rely on it as as a as a primary business model. More and more do, and it's possible. But right now, today, content which is behind a paywall is is punished because distribution requires open content so that it can be shared on social media and discovered easily on on like a Google search engine. So if you put stuff behind a paywall, you have to have a different strategy of of creating an audience and and basically, you know, distributing your content. Well, there's a big article today in today's New York Times, uh, today being Sunday, March 20th, on Web 3.0. They were discussing the nature of what this is going to look like and the move away from major platform controlling all the content to more individualized creation of content. It'll be a marriage of Web 1.0, which was a lot of individual produced content, and Web 2.0, which was a lot of platform-driven content, to the point that Web 3.0 is going to start looking like individual produced content and more accessible platforms. And if that means it's 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 more searchable or whatever, or it's aggregated in a different manner, I don't know. So Web 3.0 is basically the, the, the platform wars. No, look, Web 1.0 was the unidirectional internet. You read information, but that was it. Web 2.0 was now you're starting to interact with the websites and engagement and, and, and information going both ways is a big part of it. Now, Web 3.0, what you're saying is uh, the dilution of the, of the major distribution hubs into chaos. Uh, since content is a big play in Web 3.0, what we're talking about is content. My feeling is that if we're looking at the rise of the individual, what what's has to happen, I believe, is that, and I think kind of what you're getting at, Ariel, is that there is no like ranking system. There's no qualifying system. There's nothing to separate, you know, this type of content from that type of content, something that's more substantive versus something that's um, not fan driven. And again, that's part of having an open internet. You can put up your own soapbox and get on it and start screaming enough people stop and listen. You have an audience. So again, that's, that's edited by the population as a whole. Now, is 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 the mandate for a brand manager, PR manager going to change? I don't think so. They're still going to have to deliver links. They're still going to have to deliver eyeballs. They're still going to have to deliver metrics. And, you know, as any PR person knows, they hate being tied to metrics. I personally think there's only one metric in it when you're talking about a product or brand. How many units you're selling? If you're part of that equation, you're doing your job. If you're not, you're, you know, you're uh, wasting time on a corporate uh, payroll. But um, you know, in terms of what the future looks like, do I think that we're going to have better writers come into the fray? I don't know. I mean, you know, let let the market sort it out. Maybe, maybe not. It depends upon whether or not they're embraced by other publications, or maybe you have uh, premium aggregators who will deliver up content, concierge content for you that they have vetted. You know, like a service that says, if you say, hey, I'm interested in, in lug- I'm interested in these five types of luxury goods, but I'm only interested in, in uh, substantive writing. You know, maybe you've got some service that curates this and delivers that, which means if, these, uh, other, if this other level of writing isn't being supported, you know, maybe it just denigrates back to, hey, here's another Reddit post, or, you know, I'm going to put it on my own page, but nobody's coming there, so I'm going to put it on a Facebook page, which is <laughs> where it belongs in the first place. That's my okay. assessment. No, and, and again, that's interesting. And I, I appreciate that. We don't know where things are going to go. I mean, I harbor the dream 
that we will be in a place where consumers can spend very small amounts of money, uh, basically microtransactions, anywhere from a penny to maybe 25 cents, to purchase pieces of content a la carte. You want to review on a particular watch. A blog to watch is a trusted platform that has these reviews. It'll cost you 15 cents to read the review that includes you know, original photography and a video and stuff like that. Um, I think that that's a future that I'd like to see. I think people are going to be very willing to spend small bits of money on content a la carte rather than be asked to spend you know, $10 a month or whatever on a subscription. Like I just want to read you know, maybe five articles, happy to pay for that. Why do I have to go all in here? Uh, there's barriers to that right now. Um, I do think that that's the future, and I think that that's an exciting world, provided we find whatever the next generation newsstand is. And maybe that'll be our next conversation. But what does what does the newsstand of the future on the internet look like? The newsstand being a place where you go and you survey the available media titles and pick something out. You could look at everything. It was a it was a discovery place and. I don't know what that is, you know, in, in Web 3.0. Think 0. about the, what was the original newsstand. The original newsstand is something that you went to and you could peruse a whole bunch of magazines and newspapers. And you know, right off the bat, that everything that's being displayed to you in a print format has already been validated. It's brought there. It's, it's a publishing house that got enough money to put together to publish a publication, to pay writers, photographers, whatever, to get it together, print it. And then a distribution service that's picked it up because they think they're going to sell enough copies to move. Now, if a, pub, if a publication didn't sell copies, they were sent back with half the cover cut off. And guess what? If they didn't sell copies for a while, the distributor dropped them. If the distributor drops them, boom, you're out of business. So what did that newsstand represent? That newsstand represented a curated experience. Now, problem with the internet is all sorts of stuff all over the place. You're digging around for it. You know what's being presented, yada, yada, yada. So we get back to hey, if you have an AI-driven system that was delivering curated material specifically to your demands, knew what you wanted, could give you, serve you something up every day based on what it knew you were going to read about, and at the level you wanted to read about it at, that might be something that you could have your microtransactions on. And let's say shopping for stuff, whatever it is, you know, watches, champagne, yeah, cars, you know, a, a new sofa, you know, the best knockoff Eames chair, you know, you know, pick your thing, lamps for your house. If that system, and this is why Google delivers so much stuff and it's a problem. Imagine a Jarvis version of Google giving you exactly what you were looking for and what we're getting at is here, not wasting your time. That is something I think you'd have value. And that is something you can get people to subscribe to. Steve, where can people find your stuff if they want to read some of your work and learn more about you? <laughs> you could go look at my book on Amazon. Oh, this was the book, by the way, published in two, 2014 that actually predicted the entire streaming revolution nine months before Gartner produced a hype cycle on it, maybe even a, a year. So I'd say that I predicted that uh, entire streaming thing. So the book is called The Manipulator. If you go to IW, you can see my articles on there. I think you know, Gary has some archive. I think I've got a couple on your site as well. You know, stuff's floating around. Just Google me by my last name, L-U-N-D-I-N, and you'll... Everyone, I've been speaking to Steve London, and this has been the Superlative Podcast. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. 
for questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>